this is a coal mining community and i just think it's it's it's, it's really positive that um it's now sort of helping to shape a sort of clean future and also trying to retain some of that that value within the community because obviously a lot of the money from coal went out of the area into the sort of hands of sort of the landowners or other sort of speculators so with renewable energy we're just trying to capture as much as of it within the sort of the local economy as as we can hey everybody and welcome back to brim a global community at the intersection of climate innovation and justice what you just heard was a quick snippet from my conversation coming up with Dan McCallum, co-founder with Owl Amantawe and Egni Cooperatives, where we get into a little bit about what is a cooperative and how does it work as a business model. A very cool case study between two social enterprises in the south of Wales. And finally, Dan's predictions for the future of a distributed and community-owned energy system. Thanks for being here and hope you enjoy. All right, awesome. Well, super excited today to be speaking with Dan McCallum. Um, Dan and uh, his daughter, Ira, um, have been working with an organization called Awel Amentawe and Egni. Um, based in South Wales in Swansea. Um, and Dan is the co-founder along with your wife, if I got this correct. Okay, That's right. awesome. And, um, you know, I'm really excited for this conversation because I, you know, as we think about the intersection of climate innovation and justice, um, Dan and his team have been able to be really innovative with how they've structured their organization um, but also really innovative with how they are using new technologies in South Wales too. So um, we'll get into a lot more about that. But Dan, um, if you don't mind, would you kick us off and give us a little introduction to you and um, where you come from and maybe how you got to where you are? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, thanks, Thomas. So I, I was um, brought up in, in Plymouth in, in England. Um, and so I went, you know, went to mainstream school, went to uni, studied history. Um, I've always been interested in, in sort of what's called now social enterprise. So in, in the States, like sort of running not, not for profits and especially sort of trading in order to earn money um, rather than applying for grants all the time. So I used to work for a large um, uh, charity called Oxfam which works um, mainly overseas um, in, in Iraq and across across the world doing community development. Um, about sort of 25 years ago, me and my wife moved, um, moved to Wales um, and climate change was just becoming a bit of an issue and, uh, and wind turbines were just starting to get developed as well. So we, we basically sort of thought, well, what about trying to develop a, a wind farm and to use the revenue fr from that to, to fund local projects? Um, and that really was the start of, of the charity that we set up, um, Awel Amantawe, which means Wind of the Ammon and Swansea Valley. Um, the, so it's, it's north of the main city, in one of the main cities in South Wales, uh, Swansea. Um, 
and so yeah we set up our lamb and tower we we try to develop a, a community-owned wind farm and um and then that got built in 2017 and then we then set up a, a separate co-op called Egony co-op which installs rooftop solar and that actually now is the largest rooftop solar co-op in, in in the UK. And amongst our sites is is Merthyr Town Football Club, which is you know the one that you heard about. Um, so um, yeah, that's the kind of bit bit of background um, to, to 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 me. Perfect. And it tell us a little bit about about starting that up because I I know we we've chatted a bit about how long it took to get that first wind farm up and running, right? And um, if I remember correctly from speaking with Ira, um, it took 16 or 17 years from the get-go to actually have that wind turbine up and running and, and generating power, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it really did. And it was it's funny to contrast it with Egni, which was incredibly fast. It was really a pretty much a year that we developed uh, Egni. But with with the wind farm, which uh, um, that we, we kind of we had the idea back in 1998 um, and then we were applying for sort of feasibility funding to take it forward. Um, and we, we, we did a lot of local consultation, um, took a lot of people to go and see um, other wind farms so they could just get an idea of what they were like. Um, and then then we 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 needed to get planning permission the planning consent the local authority needs to get needs to give permission um, and that's where we hit hit a brick wall really um i think when when wind turbines became quite controversial and a bit political as well um and unfortunately i think people though you know, we were a not-for-profit um the kind of there were some people that just thought oh this is another wind farm and there wasn't a lot of understanding i guess of what a community project could, could be and the fact that um you know this was being developed by a by a charity um so yeah, and we had to be very stubborn and persistent so we we applied for planning permission about sort of three times and got to, got turned down three times um but finally we got consent in about 2016 and then the project got built in and was working by by 2017 Awesome. And there's a lot to dig in there. Uh, you know, starting something with your wife, I'm sure is there's a lot that people can learn from from your experience in that regard. Um, but I'm I'm really curious as well about this cooperative structure that you talk about, you know, this uh, community ownership. Um, you know, can you walk us through what that means? You know, what does it mean to be a cooperative and you know, structurally, as you set that up, you know, it's it's not the same technically as being, you know, an LLC um, limited liability company. It's also a little different, it seems, than, you know, a strict nonprofit to your point, right, where you're just hoping to, to fundraise and, um, you know, also bring in grants. It seems to be somewhere in between, but that local community ownership is really seems, it seems to be at the crux of what what you're thinking about yeah um so we we, we we're 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 a charity and we weren't originally intending on setting up cooperatives um but but it just made in in the uk the co-op model has been the kind of 
the most effective way to actually deliver deliver renewable community energy projects. So if you, you know, there's a few websites, Community Energy Wales, Community Energy England, and also at a European level, um, ResCoop. Um, and it's generally been been co-ops that can, you know actually sort of build you know um, wind or solar projects. Um, and in the UK, it may, and this may be different from the US, um, you, you're allowed to you know promote a, a share offer as a cooperative to, to seek finance from the general public using what's called a share offer document. Um, and then that allows people to invest in, in, the, in the cooperative. Um, and the, the objects of the, co of the cooperative have to be not-for-profit, um, but the, the people that invest are, are allowed to earn a, a return on their investment. And it, it's worded so that it, it has to be sufficient to attract the investment in the first place, but right. not, not to be the primary driver. So, like, so for example, with Egni, we offer a 4% annual rate of return. Um, and, and people invest for a range of reasons. Um, you know, it could just be to be part of the green economy. It, it could be a sort of financial thing that the interest rates they you know are, be, are perhaps better than the bank. Um, you know, we've had quite a few charitable trusts that have invested. So organisations like Friends Provident Foundation, um, other other community energy projects as well. There's one up in North Wales called Ani Ogwen, which is a hydro scheme. And they 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 they've invested fifty thousand in Egni because oh, they they don't they don't they didn't want to do rooftops out of themselves, but but thought you know could see that you know, this was a way of using their surplus to to sort of support further um, renewable you know, community energy stuff. Um, so so the 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 legal entity it's called a um, a registered society. Um, that's the sort of legal form, um, and it's. It's governed by the um, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, so we have to do an annual report and accounts, which get submitted to them. Um, and any surplus that we make um, is 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 to, you know, provided to the charity Our Lamb and Tower um, to kind of do more community scale projects. And one of the reasons for that is that a charity doesn't have to pay corporation tax. So it's quite an effective way of reducing tax liability, you know, which, which all sounds like, you know, a slightly uh, unusual thing to be, you know, thinking about. But but obviously it does keep keep more money in the local economy by doing it in that way. Um, yeah, so we, we, we repay our members the the four percent each year. We've raised a lot of money through this method. So we've with, with the wind farm, we raised. Um, three million pounds and then with Egni we've raised about four and a half million pounds um, so far wow so it's but it's not it's not us that invented it there's that you you there's quite a few there's a lot of other um, community energy projects that have been built and that to be honest has built confidence across the UK um, that, that people have invested and some of them invest in a, in a variety of different different co-ops um, uh so there's kind of people that are familiar with the model and the other thing that we've done is sort of as we've trying to build it into our business model so that for example with Egni, 
we donate 500 pounds of shares to each of the schools that have got solar panels. So and the idea behind that is that they they learn a bit more about how a co-op business model works and the kind of sharing of the, the, the profit and of and of and of the risk as well. Um, in that they could lose that 500 pounds of shares if Egni doesn't perform. Um, but it's just a way of making people a bit more familiar with with buying buying shares um, and the potential of that model to help tackle climate change. Um, Interesting. So you have not just, you know, it seems like it's a, a wide variety of potential investors in these co-op projects, right? So you have some trusts or other maybe co-op projects that are putting in, you know, seems like a $50,000 gift, maybe more, maybe less, but then, you know, local individuals, I'm sure also have a chance to, to be investors as well. Um, you know, is there a minimum that it takes to, to buy in and buy a share or uh, a ceiling that you put on that as well? You know, I'm, I'm just curious in general because I, I know Merther Town FC, which you can get into a little bit later, you know, they're similarly structured yeah. where, um, you know, I am an owner of Merther Town FC um, by investing 20 pounds. Right. And that for me has been an incredible experience of, you know, I feel more ownership in the club. Right. And I'm following along every week. So I curious how, how you've seen um, maybe the diversity of, of opportunity for investment play out um, among the different actors as well. Yeah. So the minimum investment in in Agni is, is, is 50 pounds. And the the maximum is a hundred thousand pounds. So yep. we've got individuals at either end of that scale. Um, I suppose the reason we, yeah, the fifty pounds is actually quite quite low, because because we're paying sort of annual interest on 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 that amount. Right. The administration associated with that probably isn't isn't actually cost effective. But we kept it very low because we wanted to, to try and make the share offer accessible to as many local people, especially as, as possible. Um, and, that, and that's been good because because we have seen some people that perhaps put in 50 pounds into our wind farm kind of you know, five years ago. But then they're more likely to invest a bit more in agony um, because they've got a bit of confidence that, that it that it works. Um, so yeah, I think I think the probably the average amount is kind of two two to five thousand pounds, um, and I think we've got know, about one thousand two hundred members. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it, it's a very good way of in, of getting investment, and then we've been able also then to get kind of bank finance as well. Um, towards the project so with the wind farm we had a we also had a bank loan of five million pounds from from triodos bank um but that's kind of just quite a lot more complicated than than doing a share offer so um yeah it's preferable to be sort of owned you know to be owned by you know to have a to be owned by your members um it just gives the gives the organization a lot more flexibility in what in what it does right and are the are the members paid back once a year 
or how does that structure work? So is there an opportunity to, is it a rolling opportunity to invest and then a payback at a specific time every year? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious just because it, it's such a novel structure to me. And I think to a lot of people in the U S that, you know, how would I invest in my local <laughs> community solar project? And if I was going to, how does that return come back to me? Yeah. So with us, it was, it was kind of, it was defined by a time period and also the amount that we needed to raise. Um, so, and then the, the interest payment is, is paid annually. Um, so we, we complete the financial year and sort of make sure that we've, you know, earned, you know, what, what sort of we usually prepare a sort of draft set of accounts with our accountants to, to make sure that they're, that we, that we are trading kind of normally, um, as, and we, our, our year is like until December. And then we usually then pay interest in, the, you know, about, about six weeks after that, um, uh yeah so but but i suppose the the co-op has a sort of legal form which allows individuals to invest and what i what i don't know is if there's a similar legal form in in, in the states um i would have thought there is because i know there's sort of been you know community energy activities there as well yeah. um but it may not be as extensive as in as in europe but we are where there is a lot of um lots of opportunities to invest in in sort of in community schemes and actually the, the european union has got a a new directive called citizen the citizen energy directive um which which is really encouraging investment from ordinary people into sort of you know cooperative community energy projects um because the, the feeling is that smart it will kind of contribute to behavior change if people feel a tangible link to to renewable energy projects um and also in europe some of those projects are able to sell power directly to households mm -hmm. so there's a cooperative in belgium that i went to see when i was in brussels called um e eco power and they've got i think it's fifty thousand customers and they've all but then they've also got wind farms and solar farms etc and they're able to sell directly to their to their customers and, and encourage them to sort of reduce their energy consumption as well, because their values are really primarily about targeting trying to tackle climate change. They 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 want to reduce their their their, their customers' kind of energy consumption. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they were a purely for profit, there's a kind of tension between. You know, why would they want to reduce their energy consumption? Because they're making they're making more money, right? If, if their customers use use more electric or gas. Yeah. Um, no, it's interesting, and I, I'm definitely going to look up Eco Power in Belgium. I mean, it, and I'm, it's amazing that the EU is even, you know, spanning a, a, a continent wide directive as well. I think that's amazing. You know, I it's something I want to do more research on in the U.S. as well because. Um, you know, there's, there are a few people that I've, uh, been able to research or, or read more about, um, you know, one is a, a professor that actually just passed away at university of Wisconsin, 
um, named Eric Olin Wright. And right. um, shout out to my friend Ovi for um, recommending this book to me. But, um, you know, he speaks a lot about what he calls workplace cooperatives. And it's very similar to the structure that you've created where um, the overarching mission is to apply almost a, a sense of democracy into an economic workplace, right? So um, offering like you are shares to the community to say, hey, come in, help me fund this project that's happening in your community, right? Yeah. And then you will have ownership in that project yeah. To the extent that you're not only, you know, owning a portion of the project, but seeing a return on that investment as well. Right. I, I think that that is one of the most intriguing parts about all of this, because when you think about justice and incorporating environmental justice into new technologies, one of the biggest things that I saw the UK do very well was sort of this, like you said, community ownership um, structure and involving local people in the decision-making process, in the planning process, um, seems to be one of the best ways to, to drive home justice in a lot of ways. So, um, I definitely want to do more research on this, but it is definitely fascinating. Um, have you, I'm curious, and there are a lot of benefits clearly to this, but I'm, I'm also curious of the challenges. Um, you know, I, if you were a, a pure for-profit, you know, fundraising might be a little less complex, um, but I, I'm not sure. You, you seem to have a lot of, um, to cite a lot of upside around um, fundraising from, you know, multiple different members in the community. So um, curious about the challenges that you've seen in building that model as well. Yeah. I mean, we're still developing really i mean i suppose the fundraising that we've done is very much against the, the sort of the asset base that that we that we think that we've got that we we're able to build um so i guess we've we've kind of got all of the permissions in place and the land agreements the um the the grid connections um and then it was just you know having the money to pay for the wind farm and then the solar panels um so it's quite a particular um model so we haven't i mean at the moment we we haven't done a kind of share offer to to build to get to, to kind of develop our own capacity because like there's a lot lot we could do um but we haven't got the staff to actually do it or the kind of accessible funding to 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 pay for planning studies etc so and that feels yeah quite quite challenging for a not-for-profit to take on um but probably we should be thinking about that you know in the in the next in the next year just because the, the demand the kind of demand on our work is quite extensive and it can't really be satisfied by by kind of getting you know, by getting grants grant funding um Yeah, it's like that sort of dilemma of sort of growth, you know, or trying to sort of stabilize what you kind of you're already doing. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, we've kind of raised 
money for for the sort of to, to pay for physical assets um but we like in terms of us being a kind of worker cooperative type thing it's yeah we need to think about are, are we able to do further fundraising to increase our sort of number of workers i guess um right to take forward more projects um but in terms of the challenges yeah that yeah that there are lots of challenges you know with with the wind farm obviously it was really tough to get the permissions and then because of that you know we we struggled you know financially for a long long time to kind of pay ourselves any money um you know and quite often we weren't getting paid but it just felt like it was a good enough idea that it was worth sticking with um and but but even now you know i mean the, the wind farm is quite straightforward it kind of runs itself um pretty much but i think that you know agony is you know got lots of potential but the the electricity market is always kind of changing so at the moment um we have to focus on sites with a high on-site demand so because because our primary income stream is from selling electric electricity to the to the site itself right. so with Merth with Merthyr town football club they they buy the electric from the solar panels which is all kind of metered and they get a 20 percent discount um per kilowatt hour as compared to their existing supplier so there's there's a bit there's a financial saving for for them um but pro, like we were only able to do that because the energy market sort of last year um gave a small subsidy but that's been now taken away so it's going to be so sites like Merthyr Town, where there isn't, they're not using a lot of electric, especially in the daytime, are going to be more are more challenging for us to develop at the moment, because the you know just because of the sort of finances of it are, are, aren't quite there. So we're probably focusing more on large you know large schools, and also businesses where they've got a high on-site demand for electric. Those those sorts of projects sort of work better. Um, Got it. Yeah. No, that's and you you're uh you're seeing ahead because um, I was hoping we could spend some time on the Merthyr Town partnership as well. So I, you know, I'm I'm curious. Uh, you know, you all, Egni, just to back up quickly, Egni is the the solar component, um, the solar co-op, and Awel Amantawe is the the wind farm. Correct. Yes, yeah, that's right. They're yeah, both, they're both housed within the same charity, as I'm understanding it. Um, but Egni was the specific co-op that partnered with Merthyr Town FC to to install these solar panels, etc. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad I got that part. <laughs> but can you tell us a little bit about how a partnership like that develops? Um, you know, both. Egni and Merthyr Town FC are technically these social enterprises, right? Um, these nonprofit entities, in a sense. So, how do you find out about Merthyr Town? Um, how did that partnership develop? Um, I had the chance to speak with Rob when I was on site at the stadium, which was yeah. so exciting, and we got to actually see the solar panels that you your team had installed. So it was it was really motivating to me. Um, but tell us a little bit about the history of that project and and the partnership, if if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, 
I think I think basically Rob 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 was critical to it. It would not have happened without him. Um, we 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 were engaging with with hundreds of sites across South Wales uh, during sort of twenty twenty and the early part of twenty twenty one, and I think I I approached Merthyr, you know, very early on. Um, and yeah, you know, we just didn't get much engagement. You know, I think we needed to kind of get like some, sort of some bureaucratic stuff, like a, a meter number and stuff like that. And you know, they just weren't weren't, weren't getting back to me, probably because they were just busy with with things within the football club. You know, that's the reality of a lot of companies and organisations. It's just you know, other things take priority, and some random guy talking to you about solar panels <laughs> and maybe a bit of a saving. It's just not. Yeah, you know, not not top of the list really. Um, so we, we got a lot more, you know, take up from other sites initially. So we we focused especially in Newport, which is a, one area of South Wales, where we installed a lot on schools and um, a couple of old people's homes and um, uh, the council depot, and also a big cycling velodrome there as well. Um, and then I think after about six months, um, I got a sort of an email from Rob and I think he'd sort of seen the emails that I'd been sending and, you know, and perhaps taken on more of a role within the club and um, said, yeah, yeah, I'm interested in this. And also it helped because I remember him saying to me, I used to work for the council. Um, <laughs> right. So he knows all the people on the council. So that, that, that definitely helped. Yeah, definitely, because because the club, it, because the, as you probably know, the 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 the, the club site is owned by Merthyr um, Canterbury Council, so he was able to talk to the because and, and it, so what we need as a co-op is a, a lease agreement to be able to put the panels on, and then a power purchase agreement to be able to sell the the power from the solar panels to the site. So those are the two legal agreements that we need, and the lease has to be primarily signed with with the land the landowner. So Rob was very effective at kind of steering that through the council because it yeah you know, as soon as you deal with local authorities they're quite complicated, and there's different people that need to be involved. You know the land people, the energy people, the kind of financial people, the the legal people. Um, so it's not straightforward. Um, yeah, much more complicated perhaps than dealing with a, a private company. Um, right. Yeah, less. Yeah. So they've got more people involved, health and safety as well. You know, just just lots of stuff. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, I think Rob said that it took 11 months to get the sign off from the council and then three weeks to actually install the solar yeah. panels so yeah. Yeah. to give everyone a sense of that that breakdown that was that was striking to me for sure yeah yeah Merthyr the, the actual getting of the agreement was it was one of the most complicated sites but actually the you know but it was mainly Rob you know he was just so brilliant to work with and so enthusiastic that we just thought right we're going to put everything into this because we were paying the legal costs for the club as well and and it and it kind of turned out that it was it was more complicated than just getting agreement from the council and and the football club itself. There was also um, 
uh, and two, two other interests that had funded the building of the stadium and we had to get their consent as well and of course they had to then give get lawyers involved to review the agreement to make sure that it wasn't a problem for, for, for their interest in the site so you know they were good but it was it was, it was Welsh government that, that had a sort of charge over the over the building um, and then the football stadium trust who were like a charitable body that had probably given you know a chunk of money to the um to, to the football club to, to to build the stadium so yes yeah, so we had to we, there was literally one stage when rob and i were on calls with like i don't know like four sets of lawyers or something <laughs> and it's just great <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all fine oh. but it, it was you know it just took a bit of time but it was yeah um we really wanted to it to go ahead so uh but it was it was just really you just need an individual to to kind of push stuff ahead um yeah, and Rob was that person basically. Awesome. Yeah, well, he he's definitely a, an inspirational figure, and um, he spoke very highly of you and your team as well, which I'm sure is no surprise to you. But um, you know, it seems like it was a great partnership, and he was he was very proud of it too. You know, I um, it was interesting, you know, figuring out more about my family history in Merthyr and how much of a, a coal mining town it had been. You know, this transition to clean energy in Merthyr is such a interesting topic of conversation within the local council, within just the local people around the stadium. Um, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of, you know, the just transition conversation that people are having in the U.S., you know, in coal mining towns in, um, you know, different parts of Pennsylvania and different parts of the Midwest, um, but also a lot of parts of the UK too, right? It's this, you know, the history of coal mining and what it's meant for the community, um, but also the importance of what clean energy can mean for the health of your community. Um, and then obviously for the planet as well. It's, it's very, very interesting um yeah combination of factors <laughs> yeah yeah no it's fascinating i mean a lot of my family and my mother's side were, were coal miners as well and i can remember my uncles sort of spluttering and they all had you know what's called em emphysemia um which is sort of just coal dust and just I can, they all died very young but i do remember them when i was sort of growing up um and yeah i mean one of our volunteers is was a coal miner um and worked on open open cast mines um, and he's so passionate, basically, about the, the sort of clean energy transition, because he he really knows firsthand what it, what it what what it was like working underground. And although it contributed very much to society and the camaraderie that was there, it was a really horrible job. <laughs> and um, yeah. he hasn't got a lot of nostalgia for the actual work that he was they were doing. And I think, as you said, the sort of health impacts of the dust and you know. The pollution obviously that it causes kind of you know I, I do remember one <clears throat> woman phoning us up you know when we we're doing the consultation back in 2000 um just saying you know we've put up with the cold and the dust for you know you know for 100 years you know, what why why would we be remotely bothered about a few turbines spinning spinning on the hill mm. you know and that is that is all they do really <laughs> in terms of the impact it's just the visual but um you know there's don't cause massive uh consequences um 
and it's you know it's been you know we're, we're this is a coal mining community and i just think it's it's it's, it's really positive that um it's now sort of helping to shape a sort of clean future and also trying to retain some of that that value within the community because obviously a lot of the yeah money from coal went out of the area into the sort of hands of sort of the landowners or other sort of speculators so with renewable energy we're just trying to capture as much as of it within a sort of the local economy as as we can and yeah so that's got benefits for the football club because it obviously reduces their electricity costs and their carbon footprint um yeah and then I mean, one of the things that we've done as well is we've got quite a big education program so we've got a full-time education officer and we're working with another charity called energy sparks who've got a brilliant data platform um for schools which shows the the actual you know electricity gas and solar consumption generation in the schools um so we've been signing up um lots of the schools that we've been working with to that portal and then the children can look at making further um energy reduction stuff just simple things like just turning more of the lights off or changing boiler controls obviously you know talking to the caretaker first but um uh but that again can reduce their energy consumption and they can see in the data the difference that it makes um yeah and um so it becomes much more real um fantastic yeah. and I, I remember i think i Ira's Ira was working on a project with a local school, right? And uh, one of the things that she said that I loved was, um, and I'm going to butcher it, so I'm sorry, Ira, but she said, isn't everything that doesn't have a negative impact and make makes people happy, isn't that what sustainability means? <laughs> and I, I love that, right? Because it's not, it, it is about energy and the transition to clean energy, but it's also, you know, she was working on artistic initiatives with the kids yeah. and figuring out new ways to drive interest back towards learning about decision-making and how one's decisions play into not negatively impacting the climate, right? It's the smaller things that, um, you know, aren't necessarily on our radar every day when it comes to climate tech or green tech. But um, I loved her, her, her input and her, her viewpoint on that. Um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my wife is a, is a poet and an artist as well. Um, so yeah, she's kind of done quite a few projects over the years to, you know, writing sort of climate change poetry and sort of poetry workshops and art, artistic stuff um and obviously Iris kind of followed followed in her footsteps a bit and um and she, Iris just finished her art degree um and we're developing a new center in in the village which is in the, the village is called uh Kum Gorse which means valley valley of the bog <laughs> <laughs> um and um it's, it's just below the our wind farm site and so we we've actually bought the old primary school there and that's being developed as a a kind of arts enterprise and education center um right so yes yeah, so that's that's where ira's been helping out um 
and we're trying to yeah being engaged trying to engage local artists etc in in that in that building at the moment it's in the middle of we re, re, you know a big refurbishment um so yeah we've kind of got solar panels on the roof and we're putting in a what's called a ground source heat pump to provide the, the heating for the building um yeah so we're hoping for it to open in yeah by next summer um awesome well we'll have to stay in touch to hear how all that unfolds uh yeah that sounds like a great project and i i know you know we've we've already taken a lot of your time so i i have a I have one or two more questions left yeah, uh, that's fine. and i you know i think for for me you know i'll i'll speak plainly you know as I'm thinking about this new initiative, um, which I'm calling BRIM, you know, one of my big questions is how to form that idea from a legal perspective, right? And, you know, one of the big questions is, do you go the LLC route? Do you go the nonprofit route? Um, this, this cooperative model, I think, is fascinating for a lot of different reasons, but um, it's one of the ways that I've thought about structuring BRIM as an idea. So if there are others out there um, who are thinking about an idea, um, maybe it's in the environmental space, maybe it's something completely different, but if they're thinking about starting a co-op structure, what, what advice do you have? Um, you know, I think from the, from the ground up, you know, I, I think that that's a, it's one of the biggest questions I have, but are, is there any pieces of advice that you would, you would give um, someone starting out uh, as they're thinking about the structure of a co-op? Um, I think I, I would look at, um, there's, there's a good guide on the ResCoop website. Okay. Um, and you know the the co-op structure has been applied to a lot of different kind of energy and environmental projects so that 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 will be a useful thing to have have a, you know have a good look at um and then in in the uk we have co-ops uk who are the umbrella body for the cooperative movement um and they also have a a guide which is obviously more focused around uk law in in this space um, but they do cover, obviously, we, ours is renew, renewable energy co-ops. Um, but they do cover um, sort of workers co-ops and other other legal forms as well. Right. Um, and then I, I suppose, what yeah, what I obviously don't know is is kind of what what the best legal form in the in the states is. Um, but. I think initially, when, when we first set up, we actually set up as um, a company limited by guarantee. So I think that sounds quite similar to your LLC. I think that's right. I mean, it was a not-for-profit structure, but it was the most simple legal structure. Yeah. And then we became a charity, and then we set up these two you know, co-ops, which are kind of separate legal entities. So it's almost... You kind of need to try and sort of get pin you know pin your idea down a bit. Perhaps don't necessarily if it's if it's complicated or expensive to set up a cooperative. Perhaps don't 
start with that just set up a different go with a different legal form that's that's simpler but you can dissolve it if you then find i oh, know i need to you know go, go with this model um yeah i mean and, and I, I i suppose it's the idea which is the main thing um and just sort of and, but also being a bit adaptable because it may not work. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, I, uh, ResCoop, I, I'll, I'll make sure I get the the website from you, and I'll, I'll, I'll post that as well along with this conversation, so that um, if people are interested in, you know, researching that as a, um, as a resource, you know, I, I'm definitely going to be looking into that. Um, awesome. And, you know, I, I think one of one of the other questions I had is, you know, about the future a little bit. Um, and I know everyone has their own crystal ball, but um, I'm curious, you know, especially as you think about the world of energy, um, you know, distributed energy resources is becoming more and more of a thing. Right. Um, microgrids, community energy. Um, wh where do you see that world being in 20 or 30 years? Do you think most energy will transition to, you know, small grid community-based uh, production? Or do you think there will be, you know, a maintenance of, you know, the big utility players? I, I, I'm curious from your experience where you think that will evolve. Yeah. I think... I think I think certainly in Europe, community energy has got quite a strong foothold, so it, it's going to expand. Um, you know, there's there's some big utilities, um, you know, that, that are obviously running sort of existing power stations, etc., and also developing really large, you know, offshore wind farms and onshore wind farms, um, which you know require a lot of upfront finance to kind of take forward. So I think it's those scale of projects are probably challenging for community energy sector to kind of do. Um, so I think, but, but there's quite a lot of innovation happens through community energy structures. So, um, uh, so there are projects where they're looking at sort of bat you know, battery storage alongside solar or converting um, yeah. green electricity to hydrogen as a, as a storage form, um, running electric cars um, and sort of looking at community transport. Um, so people not necessarily mm. owning their own cars, but having access into a, a pool of cars which they can use um especially in sort of more 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 rural areas um and i think the whole data side of stuff as well um if if think if we can sort of roll out models like energy sparks more widely it just makes energy much more understandable to ordinary people um and the consequences of certain actions like, you know, flying or, you know, just sort of wait, being wasteful of energy, um, hopefully will start to sort of percolate, you know, more, more strongly into society. Um, 
I mean, I'm always interested in in what's happening in Europe. And I mean, one of the areas there is that the, the community energy um, groups have actually bought bought the grid in some areas. So in in Berlin, oh. um, they actually bought the you know, the the infrastructure to, to run for the grid um, out of private hands. Again, that's difficult. I don't. That's not happened in the UK, but it would be. Um, an interesting thing because the grid is owned by very large private companies. It, it, ironically, our, our own grid in South Wales is owned by Western Power Distribution, mm-hmm. who, who themselves are owned by Pennsylvania Light and Power. <laughs> no way. Yeah. So, who, as I understand it, are, are primarily a fossil fuel company. So it's it's always kind of felt a little bit challenging trying to kind of work with a company like that certainly our our interfaces with western power because you know they're they're not they're you know they're basically a fossil fuel company um you don't you know renewables isn't their core business yes they, they are regulated um but it does worry me a bit that um that kind of influence is is there uh in the background well that's great insight and i'm i'm definitely going to have to look into this the work that berlin is doing around buying back the grid i love that as a concept mm. um and what if there was a way to democratize the grid in in different ways for smaller projects to own maybe the grid in their local community right yeah that's that's incredibly interesting. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I will be sure to stay in touch as we're thinking about Brim and how to structure that. But um, how can people get in touch with you if if they have questions for you? Um, you know, if they're thinking about starting up their own thing or want to learn more about um, the cooperatives you're running, how, how can they find you? It's probably best via our website. Um, we, we, we've got two websites, um, www.owl.coop and then www.egni.coop. Um, the, the main one we're using is Egni at the moment. We, we are going to try and put them all into one website, but this is like, you know, the way it's ended up turning out for us <laughs> so far. Um, well, congratulations so much on, on all the projects you're running with communities. I, I'll make sure that everyone listening to this can find your websites. Um, and yeah, if you want to learn more about what Dan's working on, um, let me know or let Dan know and we'll, we'll make that happen. Um, but thanks again, Dan, and uh, appreciate you giving us your time and we'll chat again soon. Yeah. And good luck with Brim as well, Thomas. Thank you. Appreciate that.